0: Why do so many children go missing in national parks without any evidence ever being found? What is it about certain hiking trails and hunting spots that make even the most experienced woodsmen become lost? Is there something going on in our natural woods that the government is covering up? This week we revisit the missing 411 phenomenon. About bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome in everyone. It's your old buddy Brad. Like we said in the intro this week, we are going to revisit the missing 411 phenomenon. We covered this topic originally way back in episode 5, and it's been far and away our most popular episode ever. So I felt like if we covered it again, y'all would enjoy it. And we could definitely cover more cases than we did originally. The first episode, I think we managed to cover about three of the cases that um, are known in this world of the Missing 411 stuff. Today, we're going to at least double that. Um, If you haven't listened to the first one, you may want to, just because we get more into the history of it and you get to learn a little more background information than we'll be covering here. But still, I like each episode to be standalone, so I'll touch on some of the important points here to kind of give you the right context to understand the stories we're going to cover today. So the face of the missing 411 phenomenon is David Politis, and he is a former police detective who one day learned that there were a ton of missing cases going on in our national parks and no one was investigating them. In fact, the national park service doesn't even document these missing cases in any proper manner. And when he dug into it a little deeper, he found that every case was odd Now, he publishes a line of books, the Missing 411 books. He sells the books only through his website, which is www.canammissing.com. I think that stands for Canadian American Missing.com. He's got something like nine books out there uh, on these sorts of cases. He's also put out a couple of documentaries, and they've recently become available on Amazon Prime so if you're a subscriber to that service I would encourage you to at least go check out The Missing 411 Hunted which is the second of the two documentaries it's it's clear they learned a lot from the first documentary and it's a much better show and so if this if this kind of tickles your pickle go check that out now, for a case to be included on Politus's list, he's identified several common traits that need to pop up for him to consider it a missing 411 case. Now, to begin with, he eliminates any case that can be explained by a mental illness, drugs, alcohol, um, suicidal desires, anything like that. But here's the actual factors he looks at once he goes through that first filter. The victim goes missing in a national park, typically near boulder fields or large bodies of water. The victim tends to be from either end of the intellectual spectrum, meaning the person is either kind of a genius or is suffering from a mental disability of some sort. Likewise, victims tend to be from either end of the physical spectrum. Again, physically fit so that they, you know, run marathons, triathlons, all that mess, or suffer from some sort of physical disability. If the victims are found alive, they typically have absolutely no memory of what occurred. Now, children are a bit of an exception, But their memories are typically bizarre and dreamlike. For example, there's a famous one about a little girl who claimed she was cared for by a family of bears while she was missing. For the victims that are found dead, medical examiners usually cannot determine a cause of death. And they're forced to go with something very broad, like exposure is is probably the most common cause of death in these cases. Victims are often found in areas that are difficult or impossible to reach by foot or within the time that has elapsed. You know, there's stories of toddlers being gone for just a couple hours, yet they're found eight or nine miles away. Uh, Likewise, you'll see stories of, again, children who have climbed... 2,000 feet up a hillish, almost cliff-like surface face that experienced climbers have to grunt and groan on their hands and knees to get to the top of. Victims are usually found, especially if they're dead, in areas that have been searched multiple times by professionals, you know, the search and rescue specialists. Those victims that are found dead who have been missing for weeks or months, often don't show the signs of decay you would expect. The body actually looks like it's only been dead for 24 to 48 hours when they're found. One really common trait that's very strange, victims are often found without shoes. You'll hear a lot about shoes and socks going missing. Children also have the oddities in that When they're found dead, their clothes, they'll typically be naked and their clothes will be folded neatly next to them. Uh, If they're found alive or dead, sometimes the clothes will be on them, but inside out or on backwards. And it will typically be a child that's of an age where they haven't really learned to dress themselves yet. Another very common trait is search and rescue dogs who live to find scent, can never pick up a scent of a victim. In fact, a lot of times you'll read a story where they deploy the dogs, the dogs will sniff around a little bit, and they'll just sit down. Almost as if they're like, nah, not today. We're taking a personal day. And lastly, search and rescue personnel, people who are trained in tracking and finding people, often can find no tracks or find tracks that end suddenly without any logical explanation. Now, through his research, David Pilatus has identified several hot spots throughout the United States that um, seem to attract more of these missing person cases in other parts of the country. And again, uh, if you want more details or a more thorough background, just go check out our first episode on this. So, we're just going to jump into the stories and run wild with it. These are all coming from David Politis' book, um Missing 411 Eastern United States. I didn't do any independent research on this one. This is just going to be a this is just going to be a sit back and enjoy some stories type of episode rather than more of our typical episode where we analyze things in a bit more detail. So, hopefully you enjoy this Laid-back offering. We will start with the case of Thelma Ann Wilk. She was a 21-month-old girl living in Motson, Wisconsin in 1935. Her mama left to go to the store one afternoon, and she was left alone home with her disabled father. Now, in the short time it took her mom to get out the door, Thelma disappeared. Thelma's father never saw her leave the house, and the mother left the door open just long enough for her to get through. So there wasn't a huge window for this child to go missing. In fact, you could arguably say that it wasn't possible for this child to leave the house on her own. A search party was formed immediately of neighbors and other locals. For two days, they searched tirelessly around the area for little Thelma, But no evidence of her was ever found anywhere. Now, the search was hampered by severe snowstorms the day after Thelma disappeared. Just to help put in context, Wisconsin typically gets two inches of snow each May. I'm sorry, 0.2 inches of snow each May or five millimeters. And this was something that dumped uh, several inches. So it was it was odd from a weather perspective. As the search efforts began slowing down, a farmer named Albert McClellan was out inspecting his property. And he happened to visit a part of his land that he rarely went to because it was just too rugged for him and there wasn't much he could do with it. But there, under a giant oak tree, he saw a small body on the ground. Hesitantly but quickly, Albert approached the body and gently rolled it over. Rather than finding what he feared, Albert found Thelma asleep. Her clothes were torn to shreds. She was missing a shoe, and she was extremely groggy, but otherwise seemed well. Interestingly, the tree she was found under was the only spot of land that could be seen that was not covered by snow. The giant oak tree had protected the ground from the snowfall. And this spot where she was found was about three and a half miles from her home, maybe a touch more. She was taken by ambulance to the hospital and found to be perfectly healthy other than a 101 degree temperature. Doctors opined that the temperature spike may have been due to exposure, but she fully recovered and lived a normal life from that point forward. Next up, we've got little Larry Coleman, who went missing from McGregor, Minnesota, on August 20th of 1949. He was only three years old, and he was visiting his grandparents' farm with his two siblings. The five decided to go collect fine cones for something fun. All the kids were laughing and having a good time, and they were all in a cluster together. But during the activity, Larry just disappeared. No one saw him wander off. No one heard him walk away. He just, poof, was gone. Grandmother called the parents and the entire group began searching and yelling for little Larry. They searched the entire farmland and the immediate surrounding area, but Larry couldn't be found. They called the local sheriff, who sent his men to begin a search immediately, but also asked for help from the National Guard. Well, the National Guard offered help in droves. They sent 260 men, as well as helicopters and canines. But despite the best efforts of these groups, Larry was never found. Now, there was an incident where they were exploring some swampland that wasn't far from the farm, That, but it was really rough terrain. It had really deep pockets of water and just terrible mosquitoes this time of year. Now, while there was no evidence of Larry found, a single canine indicated it caught sin of Larry. So, searchers kind of converged on the area in mass and went all over that plot of nasty land, but didn't find anything. They continued searching for another couple of weeks, but eventually called off the search when they, they just couldn't find a lick of Larry. Fast forward to November on the 13th, still in 1949, a bit of evidence of Larry was finally found. A hunter who was about two miles from Larry's grandparents' farm found a small child's shirt wrapped up in some bushes. And something about it just didn't sit right with him. So he contacted the local game warden who called the sheriff and they started the search for Larry again because that ended up being Larry's shirt. Two days later, Larry was found in the middle of a swamp not far from where the shirt was located. No cause of death for the little boy was ever publicly released. In July of 1955, Nora Smith, a 78-year-old woman, was living in a senior care facility in Gardendale, Alabama. It's a town just north of Birmingham. At approximately 4 o'clock one afternoon, Ms. Smith simply disappeared. Staff searched the entire facility as well as the nearby, nearby grounds, but she was nowhere to be found. Now, one important note about Ms. Smith, this nearly 80-year-old woman had severe ankle and hip issues that made walking not only difficult, but extremely painful for her. But despite this significant mobility issue, Ms. Smith remained missing for over five days. There were coordinated search efforts by law enforcement that included helicopters and canines, never found her. That is until the sixth day of the search she was located. A searcher found her less than a quarter mile away from the facility, area that had already been searched. She was semi-conscious and laying on her side in a stream. She was missing both her shoes and her stockings and complained to rescuers as they carried her to a an ambulance, that someone had been chasing her and throwing water on her. When she got to the hospital, doctors determined Mrs. Smith was in rather good condition for having spent six days in the woods. Now, she was covered in cuts and scratches from briar patches. And when interviewed, she could not explain how she got into the woods. She could not explain how she managed to survive in the woods. She remembered saying that someone had been throwing water on her and kind of chasing after her, but she couldn't remember who had been doing it. Another weird fact is when she was rescued, searchers noticed she had a bunch of broom sage in her pockets. Now, broom sage is a shrub that grows primarily in the southwestern corner of the United States. How it appeared in Alabama located in the southeastern part of the United States, in Miss Smith's Pockets, remains a total mystery. Next up is Christopher Tompkins, and this is another weird one. He was 20 years old in 2002 and working for a surveying crew in Georgia. This particular day in January, he was part of a four-man team And after lunch, they were sent walking the shoulder of Highway 85. There's no details on what they were exactly doing, but it was something work-related. They were spread out with about 50 feet between each man, and Chris was at the rear. The crew claimed that Chris was walking close to a barbed wire fence when he suddenly disappeared. There was no cry, there was no scuffle, no one saw or heard anything. Chris was just simply gone. The remaining members of the crew walked back to where they had last seen Chris and found his tools scattered on the ground, as well as a handful of change in the dirt, and most strangely of all, one of Chris's boots. Police refused to accept a missing persons report for 24 hours. One of my biggest pet peeves, as you no doubt know, But when they finally did, after letting all that precious time slip away, they went to the fence and noticed that there were several denim fibers that matched the type of jeans Chris was wearing, but they were only found on the middle wires of the barbed wire fence. Now, this, coupled with the mess of stuff found on the ground in front of the fence, had led some to suggest that maybe Chris was grasped and yanked through the barbed wire fence against his will. Now, the terrain on the other side of this fence at this portion of the land is extremely swampy, thickly wooded, and just and snake infested. It's It's just a mess of a land. I mean, in other words, this is just a little slice of terribleness no one would choose to walk into. And police, despite searching that slice of hell, found no trace of Chris at all. About a year later, the owner of the property was out inspecting his land, and he found a boot. He turned it over to police just in case it had something to do with Chris's disappearance. And sure enough, it was Chris's other boot. That's the last bit of evidence that's ever been found regarding Chris. No details about what happened to him or where he went off to. Okay, up next we have Michael Auberry. He went missing from Doughton Park in North Carolina back in March of 2007. Now this park is several thousand acres and is known mainly for having some original pioneer structures that are still standing and for its trout fishing. Michael was camping there with his Boy Scout troop, and on March 17th, which was a Saturday, Michael happened to oversleep, so he missed a lot of the morning activities that were going on. So he found himself alone in the camp with just one other scout leader. So he decided just to hang around the camp since it was almost lunchtime and wait for everybody to get back then. And then he joined in the afternoon activities. Well, everybody shows up around noon. They have lunch. He was eating lunch with his buddies, having fun, cutting up. And then around one o'clock, everybody noticed that he was gone. Nobody remembered seeing Michael for a period of time. He had, again, just disappeared. So his friends notified the adults at the camp and they quickly organized a search of the immediate area but found no signs of Michael. Then they wisely contacted the authorities. Law enforcement as well as search and rescue professionals started their search as soon as they got on the scene. That very first evening they located Michael's mess kit which was about one mile away from the camp. Shortly after it was found a heavy rainstorm moved in and drenched the area with rainfall until Monday morning. SARS called in helicopters that were equipped with specialized equipment designed for finding people through, like, thermal cameras and infrared cameras and all this other technology I'm not smart enough to speak about. And they flew over the area multiple times, but never picked up any trace of Michael. Well, investigators started becoming suspicious why they couldn't find any trace of Michael, and started to think that foul play may be a possibility here. Kind of strangely, the FBI showed up. Uh, Agents arrived at the SAR's headquarters, and they were there claiming just to want to monitor the situation. Now, understand, this is not something within the jurisdiction of the FBI. They, you know, do crimes that cross over state lines. And... While obviously we have a theory that there's some foul play at work, there's nothing in the records to suggest that anyone from any agency ever contacted the FBI and asked for their assistance. Three days after Michael went missing, he was found at the edge of a creek, alive. He was very disoriented, but he could talk to investigators. He had no fear fathom of an idea of how long he had been gone. Time was just, it's like it didn't exist to him. Newspaper reports claim he was never really able to tell the entire story of how he got lost or what he did while he was lost. And after Michael was found, it was reported that local law enforcement actually had issued an area-wide missing persons report. Now, this is what you do when you think a child's been kidnapped. Um, That way you have all the surrounding agencies on the lookout for a kid that's possibly being drugged out of the area very quickly. But this is really not typical procedure when you've got someone lost in the woods. You know, when you have this alert that everybody in the area needs to be on the lookout for Michael, coupled with... The FBI just kind of showing up, it raises some eyebrows. And people have developed lots of conspiracy theories regarding this case because of that. All right, the last case we're going to get into today is Tranny Lynn Gibson. Back on October 8th, 1976, Bearden High School in Knoxville, Tennessee, took students on a field trip where they hiked part of the Appalachian Trail. Not the whole thing, obviously. That would be crazy. But they were going to cover about 40 miles worth of it that ran through the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Trini, obviously, was part of this hike, or I would have wasted that time telling you about it. And like most of the kids, she bounced back and forth between different groups of of her classmates to chit-chat with her friends. Around 3 o'clock on the first day, Trini stopped and was seen looking intently at something off the trail. Now this was at a part of the trail that was very well defined. And when you see pictures of it, this isn't the perfect way to describe it, but it's it's almost as if it's like cut into a hillside because you've got a really steep climb on, on one shoulder and then a steep fall on the other shoulder. Um, and, you know, from people that are on scene, the description they gave is that, you know, it would be really tough to try to jump down the hill, um, to try to get anywhere. There was no trails or other attractions down there. It was just difficult terrain, tightly packed with trees. And yet this is the point on the trail that Trini vanished. Now, of course, statements were taken to fellow students, and when you put them together and look at them, it's, she just poofed away. Um, The last group she was with stopped to rest, but Trini decided she wanted to keep hiking on. One girl in the group said, you know, they really should have been able to see Trini walking away for a good distance, but after they kind of settled down into their spot, Trini was really nowhere to be seen. Another student in that group said that, he saw Trini looking over the edge and she seemed really enthralled by something. And, you know, he looked away and looked back and she was gone. He actually went up to that spot and looked and he said there was nothing there. It was just a bunch of rocks and trees and he claimed it it would have been impossible for him to try to go down the hill at that particular point. One of the teachers that was on the trip remembered seeing Trini being behind her shortly before she disappeared. And she remembered Trini stopping to looking over the edge of the trail, but she didn't really think anything of it. Naturally, that night, you know, law enforcement was called and everything, but it rained cats and dogs all night. The temperatures plummeted down into the 30s, and there were amazingly strong wind gusts all night. The National Park Service tried to perform a search, but they had to stop at 9 p.m. because it was just too dangerous with the weather. They started up at 7 o'clock the next morning. Interestingly, the commander of the local Civil Air Patrol actually filed a formal complaint against the National Park Service three days later because he had been contacting the, I think it was the superintendent of the park, as he had a team of 40 men, four airplanes, 14 pilots, and two doctors ready and waiting to assist, but the National Park Service refused to return his calls. The search continued until October 22nd, and again, remember, she went missing on October 8th. Uh, At that point, the weather conditions were such that it was just too dangerous to keep searching that area. Once again, though, before the search was suspended, the FBI showed up on their own without being requested and claimed they were there just to monitor search efforts. The following April, after snows had melted and the terrain was searchable again, Tinny's dad went to the park superintendent and asked, you know, can we do another search? Can we please try to find my daughter's body? The superintendent reluctantly agreed with conditions he would only allow 25 people to be in a search party at a time out there and he dictated what parts of the park they could search many people both involved in the search and in the press accused him about being more concerned in preserving the naturalness of the backcountry than finding a lost girl Sadly, no evidence of Tinny has ever been found. Whenever a body is found in this region, kind of the standard operating procedure is to first check the body's dental records against Tinnies, but she has not been found over the past 40-plus years. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. Another six tales of bizarre and unexplainable missing person stories to go with the three we offered up in our first episode on the phenomenon. We could also slide Paula Weldon's case from last week into this mix, Uh, and that gives us a collection of ten just plain weird disappearances. Again, if these stories interest you, David Politis is the guy with the books and the documentaries, like I said, all of the stories we spoke about today came from his Missing 411 Eastern United States book. Honestly, just from that one book alone, we could do another 7 to 10 episodes. There's so many freaky tales in there. And I'm not I'm not pushing Palitus's books. I'm not saying that we should trust him without question on any of this. He's just the one that spent the most time on this. He is, like I said, kind of the face of it. And he's collected a lot of cases over the years. So if you're interested, feel free to buy one of his books. Um, they're 25 bucks if you buy them through him. If you go through Amazon or a third party, they really jack up the price because he tries really hard to control the distribution of his materials. I don't know why, but that's how he runs his business. Speaking of business, it's business time for us. And I'm excited to announce that we are ready to do our first giveaway. Now, remember, for the next three weeks, we're giving away gifts to you, our dear listeners, in celebration of this little podcast reaching 25,000 total downloads. Um, Actually, I think by the time this one is published will be above 30,000 downloads and this is because you guys are amazing and I'm going to bribe you to keep being amazing so giveaway number one here's what you have to do to enter please listen pay attention hold your breath all you have to do is be a member of our Facebook group that's it we're going to pick someone from our Facebook group and that person will get first pick of the prizes if you'll recall We've got three give three giveaways, so we've got three prizes. The first is a box of true crime books that was co-curated by me and at the reading Alvina on Instagram. Uh, if you're into any sort of true crime books or things along that nature, she that's all she does is read and review books related to the true crime. crime. Yeah. The true crime genre, uh, be it stories of missing persons, murders, um, you know, giant acts of fraud, even investigative techniques, historical true crime. She covers it all. She's got a really cool Instagram page at The Reading Alvina. Go check her out. Second prize is a custom-made, one-of-a-kind piece of artwork I had commissioned and made just for this giveaway. It was done by at Pencil Art on Instagram. She is amazing. Um, this isn't, you know, <laughs> some tacky advertisement for the podcast that you'll hang up on your hallway and look at and just roll your eyes at what a stupid gift. No, it's, I mean, it's a pretty cool piece of art. It. It's kind of a celebration of the topics we've covered, um, but otherwise, it's there's nothing smashed in your face about it being from Killing, Missing, Hidden. Um, if, if I were the first winner of this contest, without hesitation, I would select the artwork. I think it's just awesome looking. The last box is the Eli box. It's a collection of random items Eli has selected For Now, as you know, Mr. Eli is our eight-year-old joke curator. So this box is really for the gamblers of the world. You will either absolutely love it or roll your eyes and say, why did I pick this nonsense? So, again, Facebook group members are eligible for the first giveaway. We will select the winner sometime Friday night alabama time if you aren't a member of the group and you want to slide in here all slimy trying to get a free prize go right on ahead i encourage it now's the time to join um just understand you know if you come in after we do the picking that's on you not on us we will contact the winner via facebook messenger after we make the drawing so please make sure to check your account Friday night or Saturday morning or whatever the appropriate time frame would be for your part of the world. Um, but you will be contacted as soon as we know who the winner is. Then you'll get to pick which prize box you want and tell us where to send it. Okay, so let's jump to our palate cleanser selected as always by Mr. Eli. And here it is. What do you call a puppy detective? Sherlock Bones. And again, at this point, I'll, I'll apologize. I left out the palate cleanser last week. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm, I'm the true monster in today's episode, and I apologize for that. I don't think I've got anything else. Well, no, I do have one more thing to cover. Y'all, last week I put out a call asking for everybody to leave us a rating. Uh, I wanted to make a good one-week push, particularly on Apple to try to get the number of ratings we have up. Just, it seems like that helps podcast. Goal was 100. We didn't hit the goal, but we did an amazing job. And so I'm going to ask again. If you've already done it, then you can roll your eyes and say, Brad, calm down. It's not that big a deal. But I'm, I don't know. I got to do something. I have to make y'all dance puppets. Um, we're at 92 Apple reviews as we speak. The reason I'm focused on Apple is not because I'm some fanboy, but because as I explained last week, you know, they're kind of the the big dog in the podcasting world. Um and, you know, if they're going to be the powerhouse, I may as well try to get attention on that format. So, if I could have eight more of you lovely people go and leave us a five-star review, that would just make me so giddy if you have to do it from your spouse's phone what does that hurt you need to steal a coworker's phone to make this happen it's a it's a victimless crime and i say this as an attorney um you know it's it's important to me so it should be important to y'all That being said, reviews are fantastic, subscriptions are neat, um, as is sharing this with all of your people in your world. Uh, We are, again, growing at a fantastic rate, but there's no reason to sit on our laurels. We want to take over this world. We need to take over this world, and the only way to do it is through constant marching on the establishment, right? Something like that. I don't know. I'm pretty tired today. So I'm, I'm rambling a bit. Okay. Well, that probably means it's time for me to shut up. So I will end by saying, please keep being good folks. Let's focus on making this world a better place. If we pull all our weight, maybe, maybe, maybe 2021 won't be as incredibly terrible as 2020 was. We can at least have that hope. But to quote George Costanza, I hate hope. Hope is killing me. Um, Okay, well with that, take it easy, Greasy. You've got a long way to slide before we meet again. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com